0: All right, welcome back to part three of our four-part series on Theology of the Body. I'm joined as I was the first two times by Bill Donahy, Patricia Delaro-Smith, and her husband, Connor Smith. Uh, and I will not give the lengthy bios for their introduction uh, because I've done those previously. So uh, and I advise you to go back and listen to the previous episodes that give kind of a, a foundation to some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But I'm excited to be joined by all of them in this discussion of Theology of the Body as we continue our Exploration, really, of just, we're just scratching the surface of this amazing corpus of teaching in the theology of the body, and there's so much more. And uh, in, 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 at the end of this, uh, I'll ask them on where we can go for more resources if we want to explore more, and I, I hope you do, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, I also want to include a disclaimer or an advisory to parents, I should say, at the beginning of this episode, because we're going to be diving into some uh, some more specific teachings on sexual intimacy and conjugal union. And I want to include an advisory to parents in case you're listening to this with little ones around. You may not want to for this episode. It's it's completely your prerogative, of course. Uh, but I mentioned this not because uh, sex and sexual intimacy is, in, in intimacy is somehow um, dirty or inappropriate or something to be uh, afraid of or to hide, uh, but rather because it is the prerogative of parents to... To know and to choose when to teach their children about that—it's not my prerogative, of course. Um, so we're going to we're going to dive into those things. There's so much wonderful things to talk about. Uh, so many so many wonderful things to talk about with respect to sexual intimacy, which is why we're going to. Uh, and it forms obviously a core part of the teaching of the theology of the body, because as uh, Bill mentioned, in, I think our first episode on this, uh, it, you know, so much of this is about sex and about how our sexual identity informs who we are as children of God so to understand that we have to talk about sexual intimacy and conjugal union and we're going to do that today but I wanted to give that disclaimer to parents up front Uh, and with that uh, let me welcome Bill and Patricia and Connor back to Credo Catholic welcome guys
1: good to be with you Zach thanks for having me
2: thanks so much good to be here
0: yeah I Yeah, absolutely. I am also excited to dive in here and I'm going to do what we did before and read uh, several of the summaries of audiences that I received from Patricia. So Patricia has been studying theology of the body for several years, has gone through and um, gone through each of the audiences in painstaking detail and written these one sentence summaries for herself, I think, to sort of better capture what each is about. And so I've borrowed those from her. I'm looking at audiences 20 to 23 today. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, And a lot of these do focus, like I said, on conjugal union. And so I'm going to read these one-sentence summaries for four of those, 20 to 23, and then we'll just dive into some questions on them. So question or, or statement number one, sentence number one on audience 20 um, is, although the Semitic language lacked varied expressions by defining conjugal union as knowledge, this word, knowledge, yet conveys depth of meaning as man and woman are given and indeed reciprocally experienced in each's concretely defined and unique fullness of identity in conjugal union. There's a ton there, but we're going to unpack it. Audience 21, knowing the body's power to create human life and transmit God's image and likeness in conjugal union is mutual self-realization in the both unique and joint roles of motherhood and fatherhood. Audience 22, knowledge through mutual self-realization and life generation is stronger than death as man and woman continue to unite and transmit God's image and likeness even in the face of death, sin, and the fall. And audience 23, the theology of the body is knowing the human person in an integrated fashion, our identity and understanding rooted in the beginning, which withstand time, culture, and context. Now, there's a lot there. I want to focus in first on this word knowledge that we talked about, right? So uh, when I I was reading this, I was thinking uh, particularly of what John Paul II talks about, which is the Genesis account, which uses knowledge to describe the sexual act, right? So... Uh, in Genesis, for example, Adam knew his wife Eve. So when we talk about this biblical language of knowledge, I'll I'll throw this question to you first, Bill. How does the word knowledge shed light on conjugal union itself? How does knowledge help us understand the sexual act?
1: Yeah, this is a great, a great question. And I love these audiences because they they're giving us the opportunity to reclaim and regain the fullness of words like knowledge. For us moderns, we hear knowledge or to know, and we go right into this cerebral zone. And it's like, oh, yeah, facts, uh, snippets of information, um, you know, processes. So it's the mechanical kind of knowing. But in the biblical context, and in John Paul's thought here, oh, it is so, so more, so much more expansive. It's full-bodied. It's... It's taking in the whole, not a part. And that's the secret of Theology of the Body, right? That it's this marriage, always a marriage. So knowledge um, is, and the key word here is experience too, right? Experience. I, I can study something in a book with my brain, but when I actually encounter the, the reality of it, it's a whole new level, right? We, we talk about that often. You can't get it just from books, right? Because that's such a dissecting. Uh, So there's so much more to say about knowledge, but I'll just pause right there if if, uh, Connor and Patricia want to chime in.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill, for that foundation. And I wanted to also note that John Paul II was saying that it may even seem like a limitation of language in ancient language that, oh, he's just using, or people might interpret it. John Paul II is just using one, or or, um, that in, in Hebrew, it's just being used as one word for different meanings, and it was just very limited. But actually, as Bill said, forming one flesh is really the deepest knowledge that people could have of each other. And so there's this really concrete revelation um, of each other in more than just physical, but spiritual and and beyond.
0: Yeah, great points all. You know, I'm I'm thinking about when I was a teenager, um, maybe even a preteen, right? And when I would read that passage in Genesis... Uh, it struck me as almost a euphemism, right? And so I remember like reading it in youth group, and you know, you'd read in Adam knew his wife Eve, and there would be a little chuckle, right? Um, or, or you, or, or you know, you'd uh, you'd use that euphemism yourself, you know, and say like to know in the biblical sense. Um, and I think that is getting at what John Paul II was talking about that you just mentioned, Patricia, like that that we sometimes think this is just like a sort of shorthand due to linguistic limitation rather than, no, this is actually showing us what it means to truly know someone, right? And Bill, I liked your distinction about just sort of book knowledge or just data. Um, and I think I think in this case, you know, maybe thinking about pornography and uh, what John Paul II said about pornography is helpful. Because one of the things that I have found most incredible to, to define sort of the ills of pornography is John Paul II's statement that the problem is not that it reveals too much, but that it reveals too little. And uh, I was listening to a podcast um, on Matt Fred's Pints with Aquinas show where he contrasted pornography and iconography. And he, he interviewed Jonathan Pagot, the Orthodox iconographer to talk about this. And he was saying, you know, pornography, it, it, it is, you know, we think it's like revealing a whole lot. We think that the problem with it is that it shows everything, but but actually it conceals so much of the human person. Iconography, uh, obviously in, in iconography, all the uh, all the characters are totally clothed. And in that sense, sort of um, on one level concealed, but the intent of iconography is actually to reveal the true nature of things. Um, and so I was thinking about that as you you both were, were talking, Bill and Patricia, because um, I think that helps us understand what true knowledge is. True knowledge then means the human person. And so, so that helps us understand then what sexual intimacy is all about. But go ahead and jump in here, Bill.
1: Sure. Yeah. This, this, just this, <laughs> this one word knowledge, we could riff off of for another 20 minutes. Um, I'm just thinking right now of Joseph Pieper, the German theologian. Um, he, he wrote a great book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Amazing book. And he talks about how the medievals looked at the word knowledge. And they had, they had two words, ratio and intellectus. And I'll just take a minute here because it's so powerful. Uh, we come to know a thing. Uh, through through both of these means, ratio is sort of the reason. It's the, I am analyzing, dissecting, diving in, researching. It's uh, kind of a, the masculine, the ratio, right, of research and reason. But the intellectus is the way to know by receiving. So it's almost more feminine. It's like, let me let the data speak, let the reality wash over me, and let me experience this thing. And, and John Paul says so much about intellectus, Phenomenology experience of reality as a way to know we can come to know those two those two words are always moving together it's not like um we can get rid of ratio because intellectus is better it's like Martha and Mary right both are saints <laughs> one one's sort of the active icon one's the interior life icon, but we need both um, so I just wanted to put that out there It's kind of a an important thing to uh, to keep in mind. And of course, as Mary chose the better part, intellectus is the better part. Why? Because as creatures of God, we are primarily receptive. It's all gift. And so Adam's knowing his wife, Eve, is another way of saying, she is a gift to me. And I become a gift for her. And, and then, well, we'll get to the rest of the audiences here, but that's where the, the magic happens, right? <laughs> when they recognize gift.
0: Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And that ties into what we're going to talk about, I think, with this mutual self-realization idea that I want to get to. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit more about this language of an integrated fashion. So we've talked a little bit about knowledge, of course, like you said, Bill, we could riff on it for forever. And I think we'll, it'll keep coming up and we'll keep sort of elaborating on it as we discuss this. But the other, the other phrase that, that caught my eye uh, in John Paul II's work is, in an integrated fashion so patricia and connor i'll turn this to you guys next uh what do we mean when we say in integrated fashion so we have talked about how um, conjugal union sexual intimacy enables husband and wife to know each other but what does it mean to know in an integrated fashion
2: sure so we have already started to touch upon it in the first question because i do agree that it is understanding beyond the body so body and soul and we might also add heart and mind and i think that it means giving and receiving um, as a whole so not just one part or parts of them as bill i believe hinted earlier and really perceiving the human person as a gift with a unique dignity of being made in the image and likeness of god so it's so much bigger than just this is your body or this is a physical aspect of you but i am giving and receiving from the image and likeness of god which is so far beyond (laughs)
0: That makes sense. And it makes me think of the, the pornography comment from John Paul II, right? Because pornography is not helping you understand the subject in an integrated fashion at all. It's showing you literally one dimension of the subject. Uh, I guess not literally. Literally, it's a two-dimensional picture or, or image or whatever. But it is showing you only one dimension, showing you the person's body. And that is the opposite of knowing them in an integrated fashion because uh, you're, not, you're not knowing their soul. Um, you're not seeing them as a human person, you're seeing them as an object, and not only an object, but that you're seeing them as an object that becomes an object of pleasure because their representation, their likeness is in an image or a video or whatever that ends up being used and utilized by you for your own pleasure. So that makes sense. Bill, anything to add on the integrated person front?
1: I'm just thinking of the Genesis account here of the first words of Adam when he beholds Eve and to, to press into this, right, he says, here at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And that's so powerful for our, our age to hear because uh, we we just we we vacillate, we swing the pendulum back and forth so much between just like angelism and animalism, you know, this Manichaean demon we're going to talk about a little bit more later. But it's so important that he says, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my f- flesh, because the human person is the bodied person. So it's the integration of body and spirit. This is how we encounter the other person. So we—he doesn't say like here is thought of my thought or spirit of my spirit. To say you know flesh is to say as as a human person is to say this 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 dance, this combination, this composite of both this integration of both and that to encounter that totality of the human person is what brings the wonder in that, in those beginning audiences, John Paul says that uh, Adam and Eve could see and know each other. There's the word "know" again with all the peace of the interior gaze. So Adam doesn't stop at the flesh. Like, wow, look at, look at this woman. But, rather lets the integration of her spirit flowing through, like her body manifests her person, personality. He sees everything. And they're naked without shame. Uh, So, boy, do we need to get back to that. It's good that we're bringing in the pornography thing. This pornographic pornographic vision is such a ripping apart that misses so much. But uh, integration is the restoration.
2: I was just going to add to that to say when I was just thinking when Bill was, while he was speaking, that when he said, it's not um, thought of my thought or mind of my mind, but flesh of my flesh, that it also shows that we were really intended to have these bodies. And this was what makes us uniquely human. And it is part of our identity. And it's not because obviously they're, they're angels or other spirits, but this is who we are as human beings.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about um, the the sexual intimacy itself, the act of conjugal union, um, sex between husband and wife. Now, the the conclusion of that is is procreation, right? Having children. Um, and I, I obviously prefer the procreation, as does the entire Catholic tradition, to the term reproduction, because reproduction implies this very uh, sort of mechanistic or or purely biological process, right? Where it's just a sperm meets an egg, and then you have a zygote, and eventually it grows. You know, it's not not a person, of course, until it's born, right? And until it's born, it's just a collection of cells in more or less advanced stages that we call a fetus, et cetera. I mean, that's sort of the modern view of it. The Christian view, what we obviously hold uh, to be the correct view, is that this is procreation. So, Patricia, as the as the life sciences consultant, I'll uh, I'll throw this to you first. But why is procreation a better term for describing this? than reproduction, perhaps in addition to what I just outlined.
2: Yes, so it is interesting because you're asking as like as a life science consultant, but of course, I think in our understanding, I'm gonna take it beyond just the, as you said, just the mechanical or biological, right, right. so it's kind of an irony. But as you mentioned, yes, um, uh, procreation is reproduction, and I would say that it is part of the, really, the consummation and the total acknowledgement of the whole human person and everything our bodies have to offer so i guess in that sense that's really good because people will say yes we have this capability and that is natural and obviously we see it it's tangible and you don't have to have i guess in 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 the background sense of your question a knowledge of the spiritual to say we have these capabilities um but yes so especially the generation of life but how where i was going to go immediately beyond that is that it is really also a mystery, and I would even say, like mystery capital M. I would say, where it is the active participation in divine mystery, as creators, it is active participation once again in our image and likeness of God and of the Trinity.
0: Bill, anything to add on that uh, front? Because I'm thinking about uh, on Patricia's point about mystery. I'm thinking about how you know every you know we we've just had our fourth child, and every time we go through this process, it's amazing how much the doctors. Don't know about what's going on, right? They they mm-hmm. they have all their monitors. They can see what's going on. They can track mm-hmm. baby's development to a large degree. But but there's so much there's so much that's going on in the development of the baby, uh, especially especially in the early early stages when you can't hear a heartbeat and and you know yeah. see what's going on. There's so much that we don't know. So um, anything to add to to Patricia's point about mystery there?
1: Oh my gosh, there's always something to add. This is a <laughs> we need like five hour sessions. There's so many things happening here. There's a in John Paul's letter to families, he has this amazing. Sec, I, I don't know if it's section 17 or 19 or something, where he talks about the modern world cannot take mystery, just can't like relate to it or comprehend it or unpack it, and so it stays at that level of the me- the mechanical processes. You know what you're kind of laying out, um, and the idea of reproduction and the biological only. And it really is so frustrating. We go back to Genesis and I think it's Genesis 4 when when the first act of this procreation happens, what does Eve say? I have I have um I have begotten a son or something with the help of the Lord. So like immediately from the very beginning there's this you know, okay, I'm contributing the biological material here, so to speak, you know, sperm meets egg, but man, something else is going on here and you know, I know with, with the birth of every new child, it's like, there's some mystery here, you know, and the personality develops over time. And I'm like, wow, you are not me. You're not a carbon copy of me or my wife, but you are unique and unrepeatable. So personhood slips in here. Um, uh, and it's just, it's a whole new level, right? It's this kind of transcendence, this mystery of the, of the other that, we're, and we're the only beings like this in the visible universe this is what we're fighting for. Like this is what the church is fighting for: the sanctity of this this procreative power. Yeah, we don't we don't reproduce, we don't mate in that language, but we procreate. And the word create is so awesome, right? Create. When you hear create, you think of artists, right? An artist creates. Uh, there's a great line in scripture where, that says, "Like we are God's poema, we are His poetry, we are God's art." And procreation is like, we get to, we get to, you know, enter into that, that art and become a master, like make a masterpiece. It's just, uh, when you get this, everything changes. You know, I just can't, I don't look at things the same. I don't look with this one eye open scientific reductionism. Uh, it's just a breath of mystery comes in and everything's different. That's what the theology of the body is communicating to the world, I think, right? That it's present okay, Patricia, I see she's like, see, we can't stop talking about this. No, <laughs> yes, Patricia. this is
2: so exciting. And now we're getting into a little bit more of my life science background because I have things more to more to say. So I completely agree with all of these things about the, the mystery and the things that we can't explain or everything is different. Every person is different. Every pregnancy is different. And every stage of pregnancy is different. Um, but the unfortunate thing where we do actually have the science and there is a lot of study it, from it, but it's not popular, unfortunately. Um, is just even sometimes understanding of fertility or the understanding. Just in, we actually, I mean, I guess maybe from the, the Catholic perspective or in the worlds in which I have lived in, I know that there is a lot of science or a lot of doctors um, or even I guess nonprofits who study these things in depth, but it's not mainstream. Where it's not in the in medical school, for example, to understand um hormones and how they can they actually impact the body like holistically so just even as an example um with contraception and all of these ideas where we've talked about compartmentalization it's so unfortunate that um we'll isolate and say okay here's your sexual organs and here are your hormones that help um in reproduction let's suppress those but it's not a holistic view and i don't know why and it's so unfortunate that it's so ignored and to the detriment of the actual body and to patients unfortunately who are under care where it will impact the rest of the body i mean that's just a small example and i can go or maybe it's a big example and i can go to so many so many others but that it's just not taught to treat the body holistically at least in, when when treating in terms of sexual health
3: I think that's a a good point. Um, And something we've been kind of dancing around, sometimes when I talk to other people about these ideas, they hear things like, you know, like holistic health or, you know, being integrated. And the response is, well, you know, that does sound really nice, but uh, what's wrong with just giving part of a good to somebody else? What's wrong with just, you know, if sex is good, like you say it is, why can't I just give this to one person and then give it to another person? Like, Maybe I'm not <clears throat> giving you know, all of myself to that person, but is that really so bad? And I think we've kind of brought up in this discussion why failing to do that does in fact have real consequences. Patricia, you had brought up, you know, at least in actual medicine, right? Where you might prescribe, you might be prescribed um, contraceptives, but not really understand how that impacts the rest of your body. It's like my sole focus is resolving this one, what they would consider issue with it and not really focus on anything else to the detriment of health. And then, of course, there's all the interpersonal problems and spiritual problems that can kind of crop up from not really viewing somebody else as a gift, rather just some part of it to be transacted from one reason or another.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, Connor, because that ties into the next question I was going to ask. So you were just talking about viewing someone else as a gift, receiving their whole person. John Paul II talks about this a lot when he uses the phrase mutual self-realization. And there's a lot to unpack there, and uh, we have to sort of talk about, I want to talk about what exactly he means by that. But in in doing so, I also wonder if we can just briefly, and, and I do mean briefly because we have about five minutes left in this episode, but I want to talk very briefly, just touch on the church's teaching on contraception because this is one of the um, the least popular teachings outside of the church, and yet one of the teachings that the church has to hold the line on the most in our modern day and age because it flies in the face uh, of our modern Uh, individualistic, autonomous, sexual culture. So Bill, I'll throw this to you first. Um, When we talk about mutual self-realization, what do we mean? And how does that giving of oneself totally uh, as gift inform our teachings, our church's teachings, our beliefs on whether or not we can use artificial contraception in marriage?
1: Okay. You just offered me like a thesis statement for a doctoral. I know.
0: I'm so sorry. Yeah. Since I'm guessing that you, uh, that you teach on these things quite a bit at the Theology of the Body Institute. So give me your best kind of bumper sticker answer here.
1: Yeah. So mutual self-realization. Gosh, what a theme here. I think our culture is a bit obsessed with self-realization today in, in one vein, right? Like finding myself, knowing myself, myself, self, self, self. Like we've, we kind of got overboard with this pursuit of self-realization. And here's the thing with Theology of the Body. Um, John Paul II so often speaks of, we find ourselves through this sincere gift of ourselves. And in Theology of the Body, he talks about, man is not fully the image of God in his solitude, but in communion. Right. So let us make man in our image after our likeness, male and female, he created them. So, mutual self-realization is that return to God's original plan. The two shall become one flesh. That isn't just a biological thing, so you have to get married and experience sexual intimacy to experience the fullness of human life. No, that's not it. That's that's the trap of only the biological. He, the Lord is revealing to us, he's a mystery of communion. Okay, there's mutual self-realization in the Trinity from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit, a communion of persons. And so mutual self-realization for us humans happens when we enter the dance of communion, when we give ourselves and then we find ourselves. Uh, so this, this sad pursuit of self-fulfillment and realization here on earth right now, we gotta, We got we to find it in the other. John Paul says this is under mutual self-realization, Masculinity and femininity complete and explain each other. Okay, and that that isn't just biological. That The celibate, the single person, the consecrated soul, also enters this dance of the masculine and the feminine, the giving and the receiving. I'm made for relationship, and I find myself in that mystery. Uh, there's a great song. Sorry, I'm, I'm hogging up on this question here, but Ben Platt has a great song, Grow As We Go, I believe it's called. And it's so neat because he starts it off with, you know, you say you want to find yourself and you need to go, but, you know, I, I think I'm, we, I got to go with you. We're going to grow as we go. You ebb and I flow. It's a beautiful song. You know, it's the highs and lows. Let, let's do this together. I think that's what we're supposed to do. That's what mutual self-realization is. When we isolate ourselves from another bad news.
2: Yes. So I do completely agree with Bill and especially in the sense in marriage or outside of marriage, this need for union and this is how we are and definitely fulfilled by it. And then I was just gonna bring it back a little bit to Zach's question specifically about contraception, where if we say that we're denying really each other's fertility, that's already one, it's not mutual. And it's also really denying the realization, the full realization of oneself if you said actually this is a capability it's actually really sad because like this is a gift this is an amazing power this is a mystery that you have but i don't want that and yeah that's that's really the opposite of mutual self-realization
0: and i'm thinking here about what connor said about why why can't why we can't just give a partial good to someone right and i think the response to what you just said patricia could be why? Why is it bad if we both agree to withhold? Right, like if we both say we don't want kids, we can both come to this. You know, it's not it's not holding back if we both say we come to this conclusion together. But the response there, at least one of the responses, and, and you guys could probably do a better job at this than I could, would be right. The you know it doesn't matter if you've both agreed to withhold; you are still withholding. Right, this is still a mystery, and and you are not you are not fully knowing each other uh, as embodied souls if you are withholding. Um, a crucial part, perhaps the most crucial part of the marital act. Right, you're you're sort of only emphasizing the bodily aspect of it and not the ensoulment aspect of the the um, the sexual act.
2: Yes. So I was just sorry, going to add to, add to that um, really quickly. That really going again back to the church's teaching that marriage should be free, or like freely given and unitive and procreative.
1: Um, I know we're getting to the end of this, so yeah, I'll do a microwave uh, answer here, too. I have another song in my head, the John Legend song from a number of years ago, All of Me, which went crazy viral. People love that song. You know, all of me loves all of you. If you throw contraception in there, it's like, some of me loves some of you. Imagine that song rewritten to say, like, this part I like, but I don't really like that part of you, or I don't want that part of you. That song would have tanked, right? Like, what? who says that? So so there's something in us that yearns for the total gift of self. Um, And any compromise, and contraception is a compromise, withers the human experience and the human person and does not give us total communion. Now, we can talk about sensitivity and tenderness. We don't have time right now to do that. Why people contracept? Sometimes they might have a good intention, but, yeah. Anybody who says, some of me loves some of you, Check in five years later, 10 years later in that marriage. And it's like, oh man, if you don't give your whole self, it's not going to work. It's not going to work.
0: You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, um, a friend of mine who's actually my, uh, my son's uh, godfather. He's a doctor, uh, very devout Catholic. And he was telling me once that he saw this um, condom commercial and the condom commercial was advertising what a great condom this was because it was, you know, it was almost like nothing was there, right? It was like so you couldn't even notice. Right. And his point was like, they, they get it, like they know they get it, but they're not connecting the dots. Right. Because like, that's what the human person wants is to be fully united. They, we don't want to, we don't want to have anything intervening in that process to prevent us from giving each other all of ourselves. Um, so I think that was, you know, it's, it's an example of, uh, you know, kind of out of the mouths of babes, right. Or like the, the high priest Caiaphas speaking the truth accidentally, like they, this, this is known, I think. People recognize this, at least uh, intuitively. Um, but that's a great discussion, and we'll end there for part three. We're gonna talk about some of these um, ideas about Manichaeism and uh, Gnosticism. And as a little preview, I'm gonna um, hit on something that, Bill, you mentioned, John Paul's letter to families. I looked it up while you were talking. I found that it's section 19, where he talks about this great mystery and sort of avoiding falling into the mechanistic uh, trap. But he also says, as a teaser for next time, within a similar anthropological perspective, the human family is facing the challenge of a new Manichaeanism in which body and spirit are put in radical opposition. The body does not receive life from the spirit and the spirit does not give life to the body. So with that little teaser, I'll, uh, I'll end us here. Um, and we'll look forward to part four, where we'll kind of wrap up this this sort of foundation of the Theology of the Body uh, course. Um, and then I'll uh, next time I'll ask uh, Bill and Patricia and Connor for some advice on resources for further learning and education. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to Patricia and Connor, um, you can feel free to send me a note at zach at creedalcatholic.com. I'd be happy to put you in touch. And Bill Bill does this stuff for a living and, and loves engaging with people on these questions. So uh, his email is b Donahue, D O N A G H Y, at T O B Institute org for theology of the body Institute So B Donahue at T O B Institute org. Bill, Patricia, and Connor, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited for our next and last conversation.